0: Well, hi everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In podcast. My name is Greg Anderson, and I have years of experience working as a movie stand-in. So that's what I like to talk about on these podcasts, plus just generally talking about how movies are made. In the order of my telling these stories, it's time for me to talk about my experiences working on episode 115 of a CBS television series called Promised Land. Now, the one, meaning first season, 15th episode. So that's how they number those, 115th. Now, on Promised Land, they often talked about relevant social issues. And in this one, the issue turned out to be homeless teenaged runaways. Uh, our special guest actress on this show was a young woman named Thora Birch. Now Thora Birch, uh just a couple of years later uh became much better known for a role in a movie called American Beauty. I never saw American Beauty, I'm sorry. But I think it was Thora Birch who was uh, featured in the ads for the movie. Um they showed her looked like she was lying on a bed, uh not wearing anything and and but uh rose petals were strategically covering um her private parts or it was some weird thing like that in in the movie and I don't know if that was supposed to be Kevin Spacey's character's fantasy or whatever but Thora Birch a very young actress by the way and before she was on uh, uh that movie American Beauty she was she was on Promised Land uh playing the part of this homeless teenage runaway Um, the story itself, uh, not too interesting as far as I was concerned. Well, here it is. Okay, so the Green family, uh, (laughs) they're just staying at some town. I think they called it Beaumont. I don't know where it was supposed to be. And, um, they... The the grandma and uh, Dinah, the teenage daughter, are out um, shopping a- at night and they sort of get lost and they're in kind of a bad neighborhood and they see some homeless people and whatever. And at one point, Dinah trips over some cardboard boxes and lands on uh, someone, a person, <laughs> sleeping under cardboard boxes. And it's this young girl, Thora Birch, who's like 14 years old. And so uh the Green family decides to take her in, give her a hot meal, let her sleep uh in a comfortable bed and see if they can help this uh this young girl. Uh and so that's kind of the story plays out from there. It turns out the girl is uh desperately in search of her brother, uh the only person in the world that she feels any uh safety or comfort or love uh for and um And so, in the course of the episode, they find out that the brother had been taken care of by a foster parent, but the brother had drug problems and things, and uh, he ended up committing suicide, and, (laughs) you know, another one of those happy-go-lucky Promised Land stories, I guess, yeah? So, uh, So, the girl, Thora Birch's character, distraught, not knowing what to do, becomes almost suicidal herself, and the Green family, of course... Helps her to find uh, some purpose in life and maybe start to turn her life around. And then they're on their way. So that's the basic story. Mm. (laughs) Um, They did play up the fact that Josh uh, maybe had a crush on this girl because she was kind of cute once she got cleaned up a little bit, you know, after living out there on the streets. And um, they wanted to be friends. And, and at the end of the episode, she promises that she's going to write. And, of course, it's one of those things that there's never a follow-up to that. They don't, you know, uh, months later say, Oh, I just got a, I just got a letter from What's-Her-Face. You know, they just, it's, nah. So, all right, I'm going to give you a few notes on the making of this episode. Because there are some, uh, well, to me, significant behind-the-scenes things going on. In this, first of all, we shot a lot of the episode, all the in- exterior scenes, all the exteriors we shot in and around uh, a place called Pioneer Park in Salt Lake City. Now, Pioneer Park, if you're familiar with that, it's this, it's a park that's just, I don't know, maybe four or five blocks from just the very heart of downtown Salt Lake City, where the Mormon Temple and the Tabernacle and stuff like that are. But uh, Pioneer Park is and has been for years a hangout for homeless people. And uh, not just homeless people, but uh, there's, it's well known as a place where uh, people do drug deals and stuff like that. So it's not the kind of place you'd want to take your family and your young children on just for you know, a Saturday afternoon stroll. Pioneer Park is in a bad neighborhood <laughs> and uh, well known for some bad stuff going on there. Um, so, I'm, um, you know, what can I say? Um, that's just the facts. It's been that way for a long, long time. There have been efforts by, um, the police and various mayors to figure out ways to clean up Pioneer Park and make it better and, you know, get the, um, get the drug dealers out of there and find a place for the homeless people to go and all this sort of stuff. But Pioneer Park remains kind of this place where bad stuff goes on <laughs> and we were and we were filming right there in pioneer park in fact i think uh some of uh the crew members who were a little more savvy on things like uh watching drug deals go down they were very easily uh they had an easy time spotting drug deals going down we'd be filming something and someone would look you know the other direction and go ah, look at that drug deal going down right over there look at that oh okay um so but there we were and so normally they don't have campers and camping uh you know officially going on in pioneer park but for a couple of days we got to do it we had the airstream trailer for the green family and some other campers parked uh, in the one corner of the park and um so i don't know good for us um and so then we used a few locations uh, nearby, you know, the, the place where Grandma and Dinah are shopping was just uh, just up the street from Pioneer Park, and there was also uh, a, a house just a few blocks north of there that we were using in, in the episode and, and what have you. So uh, one thing that I, as I was watching this episode, I was reminded of the fact that for a lot of the times when we had interior scenes where we were using our sets on a soundstage, um, usually had curtains and curtains that were closed so that you'd get a little bit of light coming in and it would look like it was exterior light, you know, sunshine or something just coming in through the curtains a little bit. But for the most part, the curtains were closed because... Um, then we didn't have to put anything outside that window. If we're actually on a soundstage or in a warehouse with these sets, and if you had an open window, you'd want to see a street or trees or cars driving by out there. And, of course, if we're on a set, we don't have trees and cars driving by out there. So they just close the curtains. And you'll notice that on a lot of TV shows and movies, and uh, especially on Promised Land as well. Um, Whenever there's a window... A lot of the time, it's going to be uh, closed curtains, and and that's because it's probably just a set. Now, occasionally, we would be using a practical location or an actual house somewhere, and there maybe was a tree and a street and cars driving by out there, and so then they could open the windows and have something going on out there. Of course, when you do that, then it becomes extra work for the lighting uh, crew and uh, the grips and whatever to... Um, balance the light for the interior and the exterior so that the interior doesn't look too dark, or if the interior is lit well, then the exterior, what you see out the window, might be completely blown out and uh, way too bright out there. And There are ways to balance that by either increasing the light inside or by putting um, what they call neutral density gel, it basically filters, large... Uh, Um, flexible filter material on the windows in order to, um, you know, block some of the light uh, coming in, just make it seem... It's almost like adding a tinted window sort of a thing, but because it's a neutral-density gel-specific thing that does not alter the color of the light coming through the window, or if it does alter the, the, the color of that light, it is altered in a very controlled fashion, so that the colors coming in match the colors that are already in and then there's a lot of you know technical stuff going on there for the guys that do it every day that are working as grips and electricians and and uh, you know directors of photography it's just everyday stuff it's not that complicated but it, it, there is some science involved there and just a general understanding of how to uh, how to do that so that's just one thing that came to mind as as I was watching the episode because there are a lot of scenes inside the airstream trailer where the curtains are closed and yet it looks like it must be daylight outside and I'm just here to tell you that was a set, that was in a warehouse, the light outside was simulated and, and that's why the curtains were closed. <laughs> now, uh, this this reminds me of another just general trick, Some well, I call it a trick, but something that's very commonly used in movie productions and uh, something you may have heard of called dulling spray. So imagine let's just take a quick example. You've got a scene where a guy is standing next to a car, and there's a shiny highlight reflection of the sun maybe on the car's window and or maybe not on the window, but maybe just on um the bar between the windshield and the driver's side window, for example, just that piece of metal that's painted and shiny, and there might be a very reflective highlight. On that piece of the car, so what do you do? Because uh, if you just try to ph- photograph that um, without compensating for the highlight, then you're going to have this really bright, distracting spot in the middle of the frame. Um, or if you, you know, change the camera setting so that thing doesn't look quite so bright, then everything else is going to look dark. So what do you do about that little highlight there? And it may be just a very small, pinpoint sort of a thing, but it's so bright. You know, you've got to find some way to stop that reflection. So there's something commonly used called dulling spray. Now, uh, if you didn't want to use dulling spray, I guess you could just wait until the sun moves. Or if you've got an artificial light, you could move the light. Or you could move the camera, change your camera angle so that that reflection wouldn't be quite in the same spot. Or you just use this dulling spray. And um, it it does exactly what you think it does. You just spray this stuff, you know, spray can like spray paint or whatever, and you just sort of spray some of that onto the spot that's highly reflective. And it just sort of takes the shine off and uh, and makes it so that you don't have that bright highlight uh, quite so badly anymore. Now, applying dulling spray is an art form in itself. Uh, uh, you got to make sure that um, what's coming out of the spray can doesn't get on, doesn't overspray onto the window where it might be more visible and distracting and you'll, and look artificial and, or, you know, just ways to make it, you don't want the dulling spray to be on there too thick because then that won't look right either. So, uh, I remember usually it was our key grip, uh, was the expert on how to apply dulling spray And he was very good at uh, doing these very light coats of this stuff and maybe using a piece of cardboard to make sure that it didn't overspray onto something else. And he was always just very good about that. Dulling spray uh, usually comes in, a, like I said, a regular spray can, and it smells like spray paint. And some people thought, well, maybe that's kind of toxic, and we don't want that around uh, the crew. So when it came time to apply dulling spray, the crew just sort of steps back (laughs) a few feet away until uh, the spray has dissipated a little bit so they're not breathing in fumes. Um, now, there was an alternative to this kind of dulling spray that uh, that our key Grip discovered, and I guess maybe, I don't know if it's a trade secret or not, but uh, he would use spray-on antiperspirant. So, arid extra dry or something like that. <laughs> And, uh, applied correctly, you know, again, out of an aerosol can, but, uh, applied correctly with just the right amount of finesse, uh, it could be much more effective than dulling spray without maybe so much, uh, fear of any toxic consequences. And also, uh, because it was just, uh, spray on antiperspirant, um, it was it was very easy to wipe off once you're done dulling something. You know you don't want something uh, a, a permanent stain from your dulling spray. So um, so yeah, uh, uh, it was interesting. Sometimes you'd see we'd be setting up a scene and you'd have this bright spot and they pull out the dulling spray and and if you weren't paying attention, you just walk up to the set now and and it's like well something smells good. You know what is it? What's the smell of antiperspirant? <laughs> because they used antiperspirant instead of dulling spray. So, anyway, that's some tricks there. Now, when it comes to dulling spray, uh, we had one thing that appeared in every episode of Promised Land. Uh, I think it was every single episode, but it's certainly every episode for the first couple of seasons. That big old Airstream trailer. And the thing about an Airstream trailer is that it's basically an untreated aluminum shell, and it's huge, and it's highly reflective. (laughs) And, uh you know we're out there uh, filming out, outside in the sun and you know and we've got of course the sun could be reflecting off that airstream trailer or there uh, the we could maybe even see the reflections of ourselves and our equipment off the airstream trailer if we weren't careful so um i don't know if maybe on a weekend the guys from the art department might have gotten together and sprayed the entire airstream trailer down with dulling spray and um And the other thing about it was that as the years went on making the promised land show, there was never any effort to like wash the exterior of the, uh, of the Airstream trailer. You know, let's make it look nice. No, 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 (laughs) no attention whatsoever. They just kept it, uh, as dull looking as they could so that it wouldn't be so bright and reflective uh, as we, as we continued to create the, the program. So yeah, I mean it's kind of like I, I I don't know if I ever heard the director of photography express his frustration with the fact that he signed on to this job which e- every single episode featured this this thing, this airstream trailer which is kind of difficult to compensate for in every single shot you want to do. It's just it's it's like this big mirror. <laughs> and when you're doing um, you know, filming <laughs> You don't want to have to deal with a big mirror in every single shot you do, you know. So, all right, fun with the Airstream trailer. Now, uh, one more thought about this episode of Promised Land, uh, episode 115. This was the first episode we worked on after our Christmas break at the end of 1996. So this was January 1997. We're back on the job. I think some of us even got like a 3% cost of living raise from the network. So that was kind of nice. Every year they give a little bit of a cost of living raise. So I say, hey, my pay went up like, you know, 3%, (laughs) which wasn't much on a stand-in wage, but it was still, you know, every little bit helps. So um, another uh, big change for us, Uh, for 1997 now was that the show had changed formats we were filming before on 16 millimeter film which that's fine Um, good enough for standard definition television of the day but uh, CBS was trying to uh, make contingency plans to make a transition for High definition uh, TV, widescreen television, the 16 by 9 TV aspect ratio. So uh, they changed our format from 16 millimeter to something called Super 16. Super 16 eliminates the perforations on one side of the film where you would normally um, maybe even add a soundtrack if it were a 16 millimeter film that you might show in a classroom. And instead of uh, having a perforation over there on that side of the film or having space for a soundtrack to be added to the film... Uh, the, the super 16 format utilizes that extra space on that side to, to record more picture information. So more photography is going on. So you get a wider frame, which is more suitable for the 16 by nine high definition kind of television frame. Now, this was a little bit of a challenge because, um, uh, On the viewfinder, if you were to look through the camera viewfinder on this Super 16 camera, which was, by the way, an Aeroflex 16 SR3 camera. So, there you go. (laughs) Um, If you looked through the viewfinder, there was a frame guide, some some lines there to show you where the regular old-fashioned 4x3 sort of square television picture uh, frame would be. And then another frame line... uh, on, on the f- far left and right edges to show you where the 16 by nine wide frame frame would be. So if you're the camera operator, you're looking at the full wide frame and then you're seeing the guidelines to show you where the more narrow old fashioned television frame was. And so the camera operator was tasked with uh, composing the shots so that they would work for both formats simultaneously so we had to make sure that the wide frame stuff looked okay but any essential action and stuff that the viewer should see should also be contained within that more narrow frame and i hope i'm explaining this well enough it was it was just sort of a hybrid thing, a transition from the old-fashioned sort of square television frame to the newer high-definition frame. Now, the irony of all this is that we continued to shoot in sixteen, in uh, in Super 16 for the rest of the run of the Promised Land series, two and a half seasons, shooting with this Super 16 frame, shooting for two aspect ratios simultaneously. And yet, for that entire two and a half years... Uh, as far as I'm aware, not a single episode of Promised Land was ever post-produced in high definition. So when that film was transferred to video for all of the editing and, and all of that post-production work to create the final version of each episode, um, they never did high-definition versions of Promised Land. Never, never, never. Even though for two and a half years we were shooting wide frames so that that could happen. Now, I suppose it's still possible. It could happen. Somewhere out there, the original negatives of the Promised Land show exist, and somebody could transfer those to a high-definition format and redo all of the editing uh, in order to create high-definition masters of the Promised Land show. Nah, that's doubtful, because the show wasn't just wasn't that popular. I don't think anyone's ever... Going to go to that effort, but uh, uh, eventually, um, in the middle of 1999, CBS had a much stronger commitment to the high-definition idea. So uh, it wasn't until the middle of 1999, when they started work on the Touch by an Angel 6th season, that is when um, they switched to uh, uh, this commitment to high definition post production and they started filming Touch by an Angel in 35mm. But that was after Promised Land was canceled. So Promised Land never got to be a part of that. So, uh, but that was, you know, the fall of 1999 was when CBS was fully committed to producing all of their content in high definition. But in the meantime, we were trying to make that transition to make it. Uh, doable, and it took some time to to make that fully realized. All right, so that's uh, about all I have to say about our beginning of work in the year 1997 for the 15th episode of the first season of Promised Land. Uh, Well, that's that's all I'm going to say for this episode of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In podcast. Uh, Remember, if you're looking for the official show notes of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In podcast, just go to utahstandin.blogspot.com That's utahstandin.blogspot.com And you'll see, you know, all the links. And uh, you can subscribe in iTunes and all that sort of thing. If you want to send me any email, then uh, just try this one. moviestandin at gmail.com That's moviestandin at gmail.com and Remember, everything I say here on the Memoirs of a Movie Standin podcast is contingent upon the accuracy of my own memory... Uh I don't know that I should be considered the authority on all of these things I talk about but uh when it comes to anyone that's doing a podcast in which they're talking about the Promised Land television show I guess I am the world's leading authority on this subject and um you know I'd put I would put my expertise about this show up against just about anybody and uh, none of them are making a, a weekly podcast. So, uh, so here you are. You want to know about Promised Land? I'll tell you all about it. And uh, there'll be some Touch by an Angel information thrown in there as well. Eventually, after Promised Land was over, I worked on Touch by an Angel for four seasons. So, if you want to stick with me on the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-in podcast, I'll tell you all about the last four seasons of Touch by an Angel. Oh, yes, I'll tell you all about it. I guess. <laughs> Uh, of course, I don't have the official rights to uh, Promised Land, Touched by an Angel, any of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can go to their official websites if you're interested. It's www.promised.com or www.touched.com. Promised with a D, touched with a D.com. And uh, you can find out all the official information about those shows. But I'll tell you about uh, my involvement and what I thought about all of that as we go through. Uh, more episodes of the memoirs of a movie stand podcast so join me next week uh, we have new episodes of this podcast every Thursday night at 8 7 central and I hope you have a great day <laughs>